everybody. Welcome to episode 37 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. Hey, Chris. What's up? Not much. What have you been up to lately? Oh, you know, just like, you know, playing and thinking about magic. Just kind of <laughs> the things I always do. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a big, pretty big change you, of pace. You had a, you had a tournament weekend. Yeah, I had a this past pretty, I think it's more of a tournament week, really. Uh, oh, whoa. <laughs> okay. Pretty much. I uh, I flew to Amsterdam for the Team Sealed GP. So I flew out on Thursday, uh-huh. um, you know, played a couple of practice events on Friday, played the main event, did not make day two because it's really difficult to make day two with no buys, played in the PTQ, uh, said goodbye to everybody, realized that I hadn't bought my plane ticket for Monday, but had actually bought it for Tuesday, and so stayed an extra night in a hostel that I wasn't planning on, and finally <laughs> made it back uh, nice, nice. yesterday evening, but yeah, it was a good wow, weekend. It was, like a trip. it was really fun, uh, I like a, a, a bunch of cool things, you know, outside, you know, we didn't win the PTQ and we didn't win the GP, but outside right. of that, lots of cool things happened, like I... When I was walking through the venue after playing in the PTQ, no, after playing in in the main event day one, I was walking through the venue and I heard somebody go, hey, Chris. And I turned around because I didn't recognize the voice at all. And it was uh, actually a listener, actually one of our patrons who was uh, at the tournament with some of his friends. Uh, I think one of the other guys in the group also listened to the podcast. And it was just a bunch of Scottish dudes who... You know, we're clearly just having a good time there playing Magic, and we got some drinks, got some some burgers, and hung out, and that was super, super fun. So uh, shout out to, to Riley and those guys, because I really, really enjoyed hanging out with them. Um, nice. That's also awesome. Also ran, ran into some other guys who I have been, who I've played some Magic with and have chatted with in Discord quite a bit, and and that that's how I ended up playing the PTQ. I didn't play... Uh, with my same teammates from the main event, I played with some other guys that I've met around. So you know, it's it's really nice to feel like you're starting to get to know people and be a part of the community. And that was definitely the best part of the trip for me by far. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, it sounds like a, a, a an excellent kind of like community event. So yeah, um, definitely, it's good that you were able to to connect with some people. Yeah, it's cool. Unfortunately, Team Sealed is just impossible. That format oh, is yeah. really hard. <laughs> what makes it hard? Um, I mean, there's just so many decisions to make during deck building. Uh, yeah, yeah. That you know, and I, I don't think that we necessarily made any like completely wrong decisions. But it's also you know, I you don't you have so few opportunities to practice it as well that. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times after a solo tournament, I'll think back and I'll be like, well, I made this mistake and this mistake into this mistake, whether that's in deck building, deck selection, actual play mistakes, that sort of thing. After these two tournaments, you look back and you think, I'm not totally sure if we should have done this, but it's so hard to identify if it was actually a mistake or not that it it's, you know, and it's probably mostly a function of not having as much practice with the format. And so there's some kind of basic stuff that I felt like I had learned after playing that, you know, if I had played a bunch of Team Seals before, I might have been a little more prepared going in. You know, like we had a sort of blue-white ascend deck both times. 
And I think maybe that deck just straight up isn't really playable in Team Sealed, despite being pretty good in draft uh, and sealed, because there were just a certain number of matches in each day that, you know, opponent just had a Tendershoot Dryad in their deck or had a Waker of the Wilds in their deck or just had something that was really difficult to solve with Luminous Bonds and Water Knot. That, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and because there's just so many bombs in the format, a decent number of them are these ones that don't get solved by the common removal spells that you've got. And that creates such a liability for this go long deck that, you know, maybe your go long deck needs to be the one where you have ravenous chupacabras and recover in it so you can actually solve these problems. So, you know, these, these little things that are not part of the regular format, but are more, uh, concentrated, more focused in the Team Sealed for- format because it's 12 packs and there's a lot of bombs. So lots of interesting stuff that hopefully I can, you know, take and apply to the next one. Yeah, Team Sealed is is definitely a very unique animal. And I think part of why we kind of consistently see the same teams having a bunch of success in Team Grand Prix, like, you know, Peach Garden Oath is like a favorite to top four, which is insane. Yes, um, in nuts. any event. I think that the reason that's the case is probably because of kind of what you're talking about, where these are the teams that do have a bunch of reps in this really kind of bizarre format, where Mm -hmm. the rest of us just kind of like get to go to one of these every once in a while, but, you know, we're not putting in a bunch of like hours or whatever. I mean, you know, sure, we can put a bunch of hours in if we're like, if we know that we're going to one coming up, but we, you know... Uh, the number of reps that they have just like greatly exceeds our own just because it's such a strange, unique format. Um, not one that we think about all the time. Right, um, right. And then you so, take that yeah. and you, you combine it with the way that team formats naturally reduce the variance. So that the teams that have three Hall of Fame level players on them are going to do significantly better right. compared yeah. to like a single Hall of Famer playing in a single tournament right yeah for sure it just kind of compounds in on itself like if, if each of their matches is like they're 70 to win then their win percentage overall is probably pretty insane you know yeah. or i mean yeah and those are like ridiculous stats but still it's kind of crazy the uh the team events yeah it's just kind of like a lot a lot to think about yeah but definitely still fun and even after playing just like the practice tournaments and then like day one of the gp i felt like i had a much better handle on deck construction going into the ptq and and our record was better in the ptq you know still not enough to to win the whole thing but i was feeling a little bit more okay i'm, I'm starting to right. get this now nice nice that's awesome oh before we get too far into it we should make sure to thank our new patrons you know don't don't want to forget about these guys because this is a pretty big deal so um ben hess Alex Reynolds and Kyle Walters are our most recent pledges since the last episode. So thank you guys so much. We super, super appreciate it. Absolutely cannot thank you guys enough. And it, it really, it, it's it's maybe not true to say it enables us to do this because we were doing this before we had any patrons, but it certainly makes a big difference in our ability to, you know, take lots of time and work on this. It, and and we really can't, can't express our appreciation strongly enough yeah definitely a huge shout out to those guys it is a big help yeah it's it's huge so what did you get up to this weekend you had a a pptq and that's about it yeah so i I went to a standard pptq and uh that was fun you know i i do i do enjoy kind of like smaller local events every once in a while 
just because, you know, after playing in so many, like, big events, and I've gotten to the point where even at the big events, like, I, I kind of know, like, a bunch of people, and the, just, like, the community is pretty, pretty solid there. But it's, like, especially at the smaller events, like, it kind of everybody knows each other a little bit, and, um, and it's just kind of, like, fun to have that kind of, like... It's, it feels just kind of like your like hometown tournament, and it's, yeah. it's pretty cool to play in those. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's kind of like going to the park and playing pickup basketball with a bunch of familiar faces or <laughs> <yeah>. something. <laughs> For sure, and that was fun. Um, I ended up playing just uh, Austin Collins's seventy five of the Sultai Snake standard yeah. deck. Uh, it worked out pretty well. I drew into top eight as first seed after going five zero one. Because I got paired down the second to last round and had to okay, play it out, gotcha. despite the other XOs double drawing, and then immediately got slaughtered in in the in the quarterfinals <laughs> by by mono red, and that was fun. The actually like winning the PTQ or PPTQ didn't you know I wasn't like super invested in making that happen just because it's likely that I'm going to be on a team for the team RPTQ anyways, so it was just kind of like a tournament that I wanted to play in. Yeah, so right, uh, my my mono red opponent. Um, was one that I had defeated in the Swiss, but then he was able to turn the tides on me in the in the quarterfinals and um, pretty easily two o me, which was <laughs> unfortunate. But yeah, I mean happen. sometimes you just get mono redded like that. I did. I got mono redded. It was the classic case of uh, mono red is here to capitalize on if you ever stumble, and I, I stumbled right. a little bit and just enough to to get run over. The game the game two I thought was actually interesting where I was stuck on three lands. And I have a I have a servant for a little bit for kind of like pseudo fourth land, but he killed it pretty quickly after he realized that I was stuck on lands. And uh, I had some interesting sequencing decisions where I kind of got to the point where I felt like I the only way I was going to win the game was if I drew untapped land my next turn, an untapped black source, so that I could Vraska's contempt his Chandra that was threatening to ultimate. And I had a Brontodon in play. And he had a, a Aethersphere Harvester in play. So I kind of was like, I was getting a little frustrated at not drawing my fourth land. And then I, so I was like, all right, man, I, I need to draw a land next turn to be in this game. So I ended up just kind of like, I, I didn't have anything else to do with my mana. So I ended up using a mana at my opponent's instep when I was on three lands to go ahead and trade my Bronodon for his Aethersphere Harvester. But then I untapped and I drew a Fatal Push. And oh, had girl. I saved had I saved the Bronodon to kill his Harvester, I could have then pushed on that turn to kill his three drop. I think it was strictly incorrect to do the play on his instep, just because I did have a whole another turn before Chandra could ultimate, so I had another draw step to hit another untapped source. So I feel like I I didn't think through all of like the possible ways I would or would not need to sacrifice the Bronodon in the instep. In mm-hmm. this like super super close like I need to play perfectly to get out of this game, so it was kind of cool to like have a game like that where it felt like all of the decisions mattered, and I think that I could have gotten out of it had I played just a little more optimally. So you know that was that was kind of neat. Yeah, and I found that that sort of thing happens a little more often with those sideboard card interactions. Because uh, yeah. you didn't play as many games with Thrashing Bronzadon. And so obviously, if you think about it a little bit, then yes, it, it turns on Revolt for Fatal Push. But that's not right. a common, you know, a common interaction in the deck is put a counter on my Bristling Hydra with its ability so that Hadana's Climb puts the third counter on it and then kill them. 
Like, like right, you know right, that because right. that's in the main yeah. deck. That's something you often do, but this one is less so. Yeah. So, right. So that was, it was kind of cool. And I feel like, you know, I, I made like a couple of decisions like that that were like super, super hairline, you know, like depending on yeah. what I expect to draw next turn, like have to do the probabilities on. And I think that I got like two of those wrong over the course of this game. Um, and that was enough. And the game ended up being insanely close, where he did ultimate the Chandra, but then he just like drew bricks for a couple of turns. Oh my god! So I was able to crawl back into it and then like put a board state on and like slowly have a clock. But I was just like dead to any spell that he drew off the top. Right. Yeah. So it's like pretty clear that if I had done my sequencing perfectly, I could have potentially won the game. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I just I I really enjoy games like that, and uh, I think that was like a good example of it. It like easy to complain about like oh I, I didn't hit my fourth land drop for a while but like I was in it right so sure sure yeah so it, it was cool it, what what really matters is those decisions yeah right. and uh, I mean constrictor is one of those decks that like one of the bigger weaknesses is the mana not working out right and I mean you know most decks have a weakness to not drawing their fourth land but in a broader sense just like not having quite the right colors of mana or having a, a land come into play tapped at an inopportune time is one of the things that the deck kind of suffers from yeah I mean I think that just any three color deck in in this standard format is going to have that um, yeah. hindrance I guess the um, the enemy color check lands in Dominaria, I think, are going to make a big difference to the wedge decks, though. That's that's yeah, going to be yeah. pretty important. So yeah, um, that was kind of like my little anecdote on standard, I guess. Yeah, standard's kind of cool. It's still still moving. I know we saw like in the mocks, we saw kind of crazy red green monsters deck. This yeah. one with with no glory bringers, but uh, Regisaur yeah, alphas crazy, in but... place so that it can run Galta Primal Hunger. Galta's like I played against a. A mono green Galta deck. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, it just felt really strong, just like in testing, right? So I think that yeah, like if you can build around Galta and make that card really good, I think that you you know you can definitely kill some people with it. Um, it is kind of unfortunate that we're just on like you know mono Vraska's Contempt format right now, but there are just so many cards in this deck in particular that you kind of like feel forced to Vraska's Contempt in, so you're like overloaded. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty heavily like you you've got to kill their Ronus and their rekindling phoenixes and their galta so you know at a certain point you're just not gonna have it all and right. the blossoming and, defenses i'm sure help a ton and and registor alpha is not very vulnerable to Vraska's contempt so that really you know True. if they don't have yeah. the essence scatter for it that can be a serious problem yeah and you know registor alpha uh and into like if your opponent taps out for something the next turn just like a hasty 12 12 is uh pretty yeah, nuts. No. No kidding. I actually have a Galta story from uh, the seal the team sealed. Oh yeah. I, uh, although saying that it's a Galta story kind of gives away part of the the fun part. Oh, I see. Okay. Of the tale, but so <laughs> I'm uh I'm on a blue black. Sorry, just changing the subject entirely based on one card. No, no, no you're but, good. Uh, yeah. So I'm on like blue black pirates. Uh, this was definitely the third deck of the th you know like we're kind of hoping that my teammates win most of their matches. Uh, this is kind of like a mulligan to a one drop and a two drop, or I'm not sure that I can win sort of deck. But but it you know performed reasonably well. It was like a bunch of bounce spells, aggressive guys, curious obsession, one with the wind, that sort of deck. So I'm playing against a dinosaur deck, and my opponent's just kind of playing out guys. I've got a turn one siren storm tamer with a curious obsession on it. So you think that I'm super far ahead because it stays in play for several turns. 
but my opponent has an Atsukin Seer and some other guys and plays out a Colossal Dreadmaw in turn 5. So I Water Knot it, because that's what you do to Colossal Dreadmaws, and I attack him with a couple of flyers. I pass the turn, and he plays a guy and a 2-mana Galta Primal Hunger, which <laughs> I'm Oops. not really prepared to deal with. Uh, right. Need that water nut back, thanks. Yeah, I, I'm in a little bit of trouble here. But then he plays an Evolving Wilds. So I untap, draw from my turn, attack, pass. He cracks the Evolving Wilds at the end of my turn and picks up his deck. And I go, whoa, 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 wait, wait, I have responses. And I had an Expel from Orozco in my hand. So I oh. put it on top of his library in response to the Evolving Wilds. And he goes, nice. untaps, plays another couple of guys, passes. Uh, one of the guys is a second Atsukin Seer, so if you count carefully, he's got seven lands and two Atsukin Seers out now. Right. Uh, I attack him, I play a Deadeye Tormentor to get his last card, which is a Zakama Primal Calamity. And he's got... <laughs> <laughs> which should be a sigh of relief, but he's got two raised deads on board. Uh, and I can't uh-huh. really do anything about that right now. Uh, so I... Yeah. Past the turn, he sacrifices one to get back Zakama, but he doesn't play an eighth land. He plays Zakama, kills one of my flyers, the one that's been drawing cards, passes the turn. I manage to draw one more bounce spell, which lets me, because I didn't want to bounce, like bouncing an Atsukin Seer the turn before sounded really miserable. Because yeah. if he drew a land, then like he'd not only be up a card, but he'd still be casting the Zakama, and I'd be very dead. Uh, so, but at that point, I draw enough bounce spells to just barely keep his other Atsukin Seer from getting off a of summoning sickness, and keep him from, uh, and and also bounce the Zakama and keep him mm-hmm. from recasting it until I just barely squeak over the finish line. So, uh, got there. So this format is, you know, it's got a lot of fun stuff to it. Um, yeah. But, and the other thing is, like, his deck was busted. His deck was the most busted dinosaur deck that I've ever seen. But in this team sealed format, I don't know that that's enough. Like, the dinosaur decks just felt really mopey and really vulnerable to linear strategies. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, that's, you know, if you want to actually learn something from this story, that was my takeaway pretty much. Uh, like, the, so you're saying that the most successful ones were, like, the, um, like the hyper aggro strategies and stuff? Yeah, or at least, like, decks with you know if you're going to be attacking them you want to have a critical mass of like evasion guys and then bounce spells and tricks that keep them from doing stuff to you um if you're going long then your bombs and removal need to be like a plus top notch bombs and removal for going long um Mm -hmm. and so you know a pile of mana acceleration and powerful cards while quite good and i think he said that i was his only loss on the day you know his deck was extremely extremely powerful but you know, there were just a bunch of things that it wasn't equipped to deal with, and fast evasive starts was one of them. I mean, could could be that it's just a bad matchup for him, but, you know, like, I played a pretty good dinosaur deck, and there just felt like there were a lot of things... The on In the main event, I played a pretty good dinosaur deck with Trapjaw Tyrant and stuff like that, but it just felt like there were a bunch of things that I couldn't deal with, because I didn't... Yeah. Just could not contain the very fast starts. I didn't have Forerunner of the Empire, which was I think was an important part of not being able to contain some fast starts. But yeah. there were just a bunch of different cards that you know were a lot of trouble for me. Whenever my opponent started uh, turn one, uh, one one unblockable, I, I just like 
want to put my head in my hands because it was happening again. So <laughs> it's happening again. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, so that's that's my digression into uh, into some Back some team sealed stories. But well, do we want to jump on over to kind of our I guess our main topic for for the episode? Yeah. So this was kind of raised in the Discord chat, which has been steadily getting more and more lively and active. So that's that's been really awesome to see. Um, yeah, definitely. And this one, we had a user asking about, uh, not a user, but we had a patron asking about sort of kind of how far is too far, kind of with reference to rules lawyering and tricking your opponent and kind of all of these sort of gray hat strategies. And I mean, mm. we're th- that's a pretty big bucket, so we're probably going to want to you know use a fair amount of examples as we talk about this. And I don't know if there was like a specific place that you wanted to start out with when talking about this. Um, I mean, it's a pretty wide topic, but like the general premise is, I guess the anecdote that I'll start with is that before I played Magic, I played a miniatures game called Warhammer, and I was pretty competitive in the Warhammer scene. And I, you know, I played the game and I played the tournaments from kind of like a pretty spiky competitive position. Like, I, you know, I, w- I want to win. And the term that we had in, in Warhammer was win at all costs. And that was abbreviated as W-A-A-C. And kind of the divide in the community, I guess, was um, Warhammer was mostly a hobby for a lot of these guys because it's it's kind of like a multi-part hobby there's the game that you play and there's also like the uh there's like a lot of lore and and uh stories behind everything so a lot of people really like that aspect of the game and there's also uh you know the the miniatures that you get you build yourself and you paint them yourself so a lot of people were like hobbyists in the sense of they really wanted to like build and paint their own miniatures and stuff Mm -hmm. so the tournaments that we had around this game were you kind of like after playing in a couple of them you started to realize that there's kind of like this divide in the community where some of the players that are here to play in the game are really only there because they want to have an opportunity to like hang out with their friends and play with these miniatures that they've built and painted and some of these guys were insanely talented at that stuff so we had like painting competitions and all this stuff where you know we would vote on which our favorite armies were and all this stuff but then, you know, there was the other side of it where there were people who came to the tournaments who wanted to win the tournament. And those were like the spikes, the win-at-all-cost players. I, I feel like if you give me one guess as to which type you were, I could probably <laughs> I could was probably a spike, it. for sure. Um, I was also like 14 for the majority of, of this. <laughs> I started playing Warhammer when I was 11 years old, and I was always kind of like the little kid or whatever. But yeah, I wanted to win. You know, that's just kind of like what I what I enjoyed. That was the part of the game that I enjoyed. Is that I? It was the game itself was enormously strategically in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gave me a lot of opportunity to like strategize, and I would build army lists all the time, constantly, just for fun. You know, and see if I could like break things and come up with new busted ways of doing everything. It was a blast. I loved it. But the problem in the tournaments became when. What, like in the early rounds of the tournaments, you're paired against kind of whoever, and if one of these really spiky players was paired against somebody who was just kind of there to have a fun weekend with his miniatures and everything, there's mm-hmm. often a um, a conflict that would happen where um, a big part of being a spiky player in Warhammer was knowing the rules really well and kind of leaning on 
you know, some of, some of the armies and builds and everything were kind of like built around some of the, I don't know really how to best describe it, but like the, the, the finer areas of the rules where sometimes uh, I would make a move that feels kind of outside the spirit of the game. There's this tactic that I came up with. I don't know how much I want to go into all this, but uh, it was called <laughs> charge blocking, where I had this tiny little eagle miniature, right? And my opponent would have this big old horde of like orcs and goblins or something. And I would just kind of plop my eagle right in front of his horde and and then move the rest of my army around to position well. And because of the rules of the game, the only options that my opponent had to him in terms of how he could move his horde was to charge into the eagle, easily destroy it, but then kind of like be a sitting duck for any sort of flank charges that I had set up. Or he could just kind of like sit there with his horde and not move past my eagle at all. And, and that feels like kind of like really against what these people were trying to do that you know they're trying to like clash armies right and i'm over here coming up with these like weird kind of cheesy tactics right (laughs) um and and a lot of people didn't like that and you know i i get it right but you know a little 14 year old me is i'm trying to win so you know it's it's just in the rules that that's how this works so so that's what i would do and i think that that's there are similar things that happen in magic tournaments where some players are going to be huge sticklers for the rules. And I think in Magic, more than anything, it comes up in whenever there's like a rules discrepancy where somebody says something that could potentially be construed as like letting something resolve or whatever. And there's some players who really want to jump on that and say, you said it resolved, that now you can't, you don't have any more recourse and, and this happens or whatever. And that feels kind of against the spirit of the game a lot so it's kind of like where you want to draw that line for you know what's okay in a match of magic to to kind of use the rules in a way that is kind of like crippling for an opponent who maybe doesn't understand it as well versus Mm -hmm. like actively going out of your way to try to put your opponent in a spot where they are going to make a mistake like that so that you can kind of jump down their throat and do that stuff yeah, and so to to kind of define our terms a little bit, I think we are mostly talking about making plays in a comp REL or higher tournament. You know, the, I, I don't think what we're going to talk about today really applies to like FNMs and that sort of thing. A lot of times uh, in the more casual tournaments, while I'm not going to necessarily be allowing my opponent like take backs and stuff if my opponent like plays a sailor of means and then passes the turn and goes oh wait let me get my treasure like i'm usually going to let them get their treasure in an fnm in a more serious event that's never going to happen but so i think probably we should try to narrow our focus to opens gps that that ptqs that sort of thing yeah, I mean I think that's kind of like part of where the divide comes in too because I I think I do agree that any competitive rules enforcement level event is vastly vastly different from any yeah fnm style regular event right and i think that might be where it's kind of the miscommunication comes in a lot where uh, a lot of players are kind of used to the environment of their friday night magic and when they go to a more competitive event they are kind of expecting the same level of leniency and that can be pretty pretty jarring for some players uh when they kind of like come to a a competitive event and then 
have to experience that kind of other nature of the competitive events, right? And I think a, a big part of the problem is that a lot of competitive players don't know how to handle these situations in a way that is, I don't know exactly what the word I'm looking for is, but just like nice. There, A lot of people just aren't nice about things. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. Actually, I have kind of an example of that from uh, from GP Leon that I played in. And this is one of the places where this kind of thing comes up a lot, uh, is with your opponent having a card with a triggered ability that's a drawback on the card. So most commonly in modern, those are going to be Thought Not Seer and Goblin Guide. If my opponent triggers one of those abilities, or should trigger one of those abilities, if a Thought Not Seer dies, or if they attack me with a Goblin Guide, it is their responsibility to put that trigger on the stack. And once we have moved the game to a point where that trigger should have been resolved, but they never put it on the stack, I then need to call a judge because my opponent has has missed their trigger. It's one that I want to put on the stack. And this is the type of trigger where, you know, somebody might possibly be trying to get away with something by, you know, not always resolving their goblin guide triggers in, in close games or something like that. And so e- even though most of the time it's going to be an innocently missed trigger, you really want to get the judge involved to give warnings as appropriate and track these sorts of mistakes. Um, so I had an opponent with a Thought Not Seer. They, they cast a Thought Not Seer in response to the ability, in response to the comes into play ability, I cast Violent Outburst to flip Living End and wipe the board. So the Leaves play ability uh, that would make me draw a card should go on the stack on top of the comes into play Thought Seize ability. But then my opponent said, okay, show me your hand clearly moving on to resolving the comes into play ability. So at that point, I said, hey, I'm sorry, but I have to call a judge. And I called a judge, and then I tried to do my best to explain to my opponent exactly why I was calling a judge. And because my opponent felt seemed a little bit confused and kind of like scared by what was happening, I then made sure to try to give him some reassurances like, this isn't because like you've done a bad thing. This is because we're trying to make the game work properly with the rules and I need a judge to come in and fix this situation and also to explain to you what's going on. If my opponent had been just like, ah, oh, you know, you're right, I missed it and like understood what was going on, then I wouldn't have bothered explaining anything to him because we would have been on the same page. But I, you know, there's different tacks for communication that you can take. You have to sort of read the room a little bit. But clearly my opponent was kind of a newer player. And so I sort of adjusted my approach. I still called the judge and the situation still got resolved in exactly the same way. But I sort of, you know, adjusted my method of communication based on how my opponent seemed to respond to the situation. Yeah, and that's something that I... Kind of my position on on how to deal with these events has kind of evolved over time, where, you know, once I was the new player and didn't understand all the things, right? But I, I, I played a lot more events and I kind of, like, learned everything. And I was kind of taught how to play Magic by judges. So... I was able to ask a bunch of questions about how all of those interactions worked. So I feel like mm-hmm. I have a really good understanding of all that now. And and then for a while, I was definitely on the position of 
literally every time you need to do everything you can to make sure that you're calling a judge on your opponent when they make mistakes that you deem could be abusable, like Goblin Guide stuff. And I'm, I'm pretty much still on that mindset of I'm, I'm going to default to calling a judge just because I believe that that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that anybody should ever get offended for somebody else calling a judge on you because even if they are out to get you, which is, I think, the biggest fear that a lot of people have when somebody else calls a judge on them, I trust that the judges are going to be able to figure out the situation appropriately. And even if my opponent is calling a judge in, and they're out to get me on something that I believe is kind of irrelevant and not important, I trust the judges to be able to figure that out. So I always yeah. feel safe when the judges are coming to the table. And I hope that other people do as well. Somebody's not going to be able to take advantage of me because by using the judge. I think the judges are always going to be able to make a fair assessment of what's going on. And for that reason, I'm, I'm never afraid to call a judge in kind of any scenario. But I have definitely kind of like come into enough scenarios where I've gotten to the point where I can tell when my opponent is newer or um, less experienced or stuff like that. And there are definitely times where I've had to have a, you know, I, I could make a judgment call on whether or not I should call a judge on them playing my creature after I reflector maged it, or if I can remind them once and then call a judge the next time. And it's it's typically always scenarios like that where they, you know, they're forgetting something in the rules that could easily be, you know, I could see somebody not understanding that's how reflector mage works. Example, if, you know, if I'm playing in the first couple of rounds of a tournament. It, it took me many matches against humans you know, because I kind of missed a lot of the standard format with Re Reflector Mage in it. It oh, took yeah. me a bunch of matches against humans on Magic Online to stop immediately clicking my creature in my hand <laughs> in my next main phase oh, and try to cast Online. it. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I was like, every time I'd be like, what's going on? And then realize that I'm an idiot. Yeah, and I, I empathize with that because I also, in standard, playing with that card definitely got a lot of warnings off of... <laughs> playing a creature that had been reflect mage just because i i know that it's if you're not used to it it's an easy thing to get wrong um yep. so i i definitely now have a gauge with that kind of stuff where there are times where i can tell that you know uh i can tell that i'm, I'm making the judgment call that i believe that it's an honest mistake but that you know that gauge is kind of like fluctuates through a bunch of factors which is my my initial impression of my opponent as well as how deep we are in the in the tournament and how you know, how much value I'm putting on this match in that context. Like, you know, if, if I'm playing in day two of a Grand Prix, I'm going to call a judge on anybody who tries to play a, a Reflector Mage creature, right? But, you know, the you, that gauge shifts every once in a while, depending on those kind of factors and stuff. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, like, it's never... In, in general, I would definitely err on the side of getting the judge over there. Because it, it's never going to like end badly that you got the judge. It's not exactly. Yeah, it's not going to um, make it worse. And right, and I'm I'm definitely never trying to preach. Uh, it's okay to not call a judge. I think that if if you're ever not sure about anything in a match yeah. of magic, you should just call a judge. Um, right. That should just kind of be the default action. But I I understand that there are a lot of players out there who who kind of don't get that, and I think that you know. Especially recently, a lot of people have talked about this in the magic sphere, like on articles and stuff, and, you know, me included. I wrote an article on what should you do, what must you do, scenarios in magic. 
and essentially all of like a lot of those were you should call a judge just kind of like <laughs> as a default action a lot of the time but i i recognize that there are a lot of people still in the community who don't subscribe to that and i disagree with that but i i, I see it all the time and particularly in my article most recently last weekend I wrote about die rolls, which is a, a whole other topic that we could potentially get into. But essentially, in the article, I, I wrote about a couple times where something sketchy happened, and I called a judge, because that's what I think is appropriate to do. And then, you know, in the comments in this article, there were a couple people who were like, oh, classic Collins, always calling a judge whenever his opponent sneezes. <laughs> and I'm like... I'm like... Yeah. And that, you know, that kind of hurts, right? Because... It's just sad to see that opinion still exist, not particularly towards me. Like, I don't really care as much about that, but just the fact that people are worried about them, their opponents calling judges, it's, you know, they, t- t- they typically frame it as their opponent kind of being the bad guy. But I think underlying that, it there might be a fear of the judges also not being able to handle appropriately, where... Uh, I guess my opinion on the whole thing is that I think the judges are always going to be able to handle every situation appropriately. I just have the faith that they can, can do that at, at this level, right? Um, and, you know, that's not always true and nobody's perfect. But, um, uh, you, know, I, you know, I think that calling judge should just generally be an acceptable practice. Yeah, and I think, I think it's important that anybody who has any sort of platform and and like whenever this topic comes up like it should be clearly communicated that like calling a judge doesn't mean that anybody is in trouble i right you know in my example story after i called the judge over and this was with me trying my best to be like i don't think that you are trying to cheat i'm not calling the judge because you like did a bad thing i'm just calling a judge to make sure that this this situation gets resolved appropriately even then for the rest of the match like my opponent was visibly nervous and i felt kind of guilty because i didn't that's not what i was trying to do when i called mm-hmm. the judge I, I called the judge because it was a grand prix and there was a missed trigger that would have been in my opponent's favor if i hadn't spotted it but right but uh you know it, it really affected my opponent for the rest of the match and i think the more that we are able to communicate to people like calling the judge over is just to make sure that the game runs smoothly it's not like somebody has done committed a crime that hopefully you know people won't get so rattled by by judge calls or that sort of thing right but i do think that it's worth kind of talking about the other side of the story i guess um i i do believe that there are people trying to actively get you a little bit in magic Um, and by get you you mean exploit the rules in a way that they aren't necessarily intended to be used to right. to get an edge yeah. that I'm trying to think of like a common thing that happens nowadays that's kind of an example of that and I guess it's good that I just like can't really think of many off the top of my head I think the closest one that I can think of is the old combat statement mm-hmm. where if you say combat you're in declared attackers or this is how it used to be where if you said combat then you were in declared attackers, and and that's kind of what that shortcut was going to mean no matter what. Which was an attempt to fix people from gaming the rules. That that, right. that shortcut was, but <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it brought yeah, right. its own If you problems. want to read it, so the history of that shortcut, for sure. Yeah, it, it's, oh boy. Uh, it's pretty interesting, because it, it definitely was initially put in there to help benefit... 
the defending player as as they wanted magic to exist at the time. But yeah, I mean, uh, so right, so that was a pretty pretty common debate, I guess, that happened a lot, where it happened over and over and over again at tournaments, where somebody said combat and then they tried to activate a man land or a crew vehicle. And they just couldn't anymore because they were undeclared attackers. And that's just kind of like one of those fine lines where intent is kind of lost a little bit in favor of playing exactly by the competitive rules document, right? Because at the time, competitive rules says that you're undeclared attackers and you've missed your opportunity to, to crew, right? And pretty much any competitive player was going to hold you to that, right? It's a feel bad, right? Because the the player who doesn't understand that rule feels like they've been taken advantage of, right? Um, right, and often is not going to understand why what just happened happened. Right. Yeah. So, right. I think that you know we should be doing everything that we can to take those gray areas out of the rules. Um, right. And I think that we are doing a pretty good job of that because combat now means something different. Yep. They've they've updated that shortcut to mean kind of something more nuanced where they've they've tried to encompass all of like the corner case scenarios where you can say combat and if your opponent says sure, you do have the opportunity to act again, but if you just start turning your creatures sideways, then it's assumed that you are declaring your attackers. And if you say combat and your opponent acts, then it's assumed that they are acting in your beginning of combat phase not your main phase which used to be the abusable aspect right so i think i think that these things are getting a little more nuanced which is good but you know magic isn't perfect and there are still i'm sure plenty of gray areas like this and the the reality is that paper magic is a pretty sloppy messy game in terms of how everything happens and is communicated and all the shortcuts that exist that are accepted and i think that that's just always going to have to be true and there will always be consequences of that just because nobody wants to have to announce all of their phase changes and all of their priority passes and all of those <laughs> things it's just not it's just not reasonable to have to happen in a in a paper game of magic but the fact that we are using any number of shortcuts just means that there are going to be areas of the game that are you know, they're just going to happen sloppily. And if somebody is trying to do some weird play in your damage step or whatever, then they have to, it's up, it's kind of up to them to communicate very, very clearly what they want to happen as opposed to what normally happens after you put your creatures in the graveyard, which is you're in your second main phase, right? Some of the, I mean, to, to, to remark on some of the things that I have either seen or read about or heard about that kind of still go on. I mean, a lot of things are are solvable by very clear communication. I think you mm-hmm. are, you know, I, I I guess the discussion that we're having is like what what is too far and what is not too far. And obviously, you want to get whatever edges you can within the rules. But even then, there are some things that I think are not, you know, and, and I don't I don't know if I want to say like not within the spirit of the game or something. But I think stuff like like creatures with variable power and toughness is a big one. Um, there are yeah. there are a couple of different types of players when when Goyf is involved. Like there are players that when you say, OK, how big is that Goyf? They'll like they'll read you their graveyard or they'll hand you their graveyard or something. And then there are players who, with you, will determine the size of the goif, and then as a team, you determine how big the goifs are right now. Right. And I, I'm not saying that 
and, and there's there's a couple of different motivations for being the first kind of player. One is you never want to accidentally lie to your opponent. You don't want to say the graves are four fives because you missed that there was a planeswalker in your opponent's graveyard. You, you don't want that to be true at all. I mean, you don't want that to be something that happens. But at the same time, I think there's a, a, a reasonable ground where you can say, all right, let's figure this out. And you can, I, I think that the way to do it, the way I always do it, as I say, I say, okay, I've got creature instant land sorcery. And then we look over and determine that my opponent also has enchantments. And then we both go, okay, so the goyves are five sixes. And then we both confirm that they are five sixes. I think that gaining an edge by like not being upfront with how big the goyves are and hoping your opponent miscounts or something, I don't think that's part of magic. And I'm not into that that way of approaching uh determining what the game state is like if i i don't feel proud of myself if i win a combat because my opponent thought my goif was a four five and it was actually a five six i don't think that that is like what i've been training for um so that's that's one area where i think this comes up i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah uh yeah we see stuff like that happen all the time with like lord effects and Mm -hmm. prowess triggers and you know, variable variable power and toughness like Tarmogoyf and stuff like that, where, you know, I, I, I know a lot of players who, like, play Merfolk and just, like, turn all their creatures sideways and kind of look at you and and you're like, so I'm taking 18 and the Merfolk player will be like, are you, are you taking damage? Are you ready to count it up? And they're just <laughs> not willing to count it up until we're actually moving to damage and you're taking the damage, right? Right. Because, right, the, like, there are the two perspectives of... One of the perspectives is... What kind of you're saying is that you, I want to win because I beat you in a tactical game of magic, not because you couldn't add up things appropriately. And then the the other perspective is they're kind of including being able to to add up all the damage in being able to be successful at magic. And I think that's you know, typically I'm going to tell my opponents uh, what I believe the board state looks like in those kind of scenarios but but I can also I, I, I understand the other perspective where you're you're giving your opponent information kind of for free a little bit when mm-hmm. you when you do stuff like that and I guess my line is actually between the Tarmogoyf's power and toughness and and the Merfolk's the, power uh, and toughness the, the Merfolk thing because yeah. they, they feel different for some reason they they do feel very different for some reason and um, and I, I, I don't even know that they are but right. for me, I'm always going to work with my opponent to figure out the power and toughness of a Tarmogoyf. I've never sure. done anything different. That's just like how my how how I'm going to function in that scenario, and I'm I'm never really going to try to get somebody on that because yep. because I think that the the Tarmogoyf's power and toughness is often just it's it's kind of hard to figure out, right? You kind of have to dig through your graveyards, and it's and changing constantly. Like, your Merfolk's power and toughness is changing when something comes into play or leaves play. The the Goyce power and toughness, especially in games with, like, scavenging ooze and stuff, is is changing constantly. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, new things are added, and then it changes or whatever. And I don't I don't really like using dice for Tarmogoyf, just because I feel like because it changes so often, it's yeah. so easy to forget to move the die up or down. And that can get kind of messy, and then things are suddenly misrepresented, and that's something that you always want to avoid. But uh, but if my opponent ever asks, okay, so how big are our Tarmogoyfs, I'm always going to work with them to, to dig through the graveyards and, and come to a consensus conclusion, right? But with the Merfolk scenario, I'm I'm often going to 
maybe hedge in the opposite direction where all of the information is very clearly on the table. And I think that the clarity of the information on the table is kind of a, more of an incentive for me to be like, here's all of the information, you're welcome to figure it out, which which I understand is, is definitely feels a little more on the, I guess, gray area side, or, you know, some people aren't kind of like that. But it, I just feel like me giving my opponent that information just kind of for free is like, I'm, I'm doing work for you that, that I feel like you should be able to do and... If I'm using brain power to try to figure these things out, why, you know, why am I just going to give that to you for free kind of deal? So, so I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I guess I do fall on the kind of the other end of the spectrum for, for, for that scenario with the Lords and everything where if, you know, I'm never going to try to hide information. I'm never going to try to get my opponents, but I, yeah. you know, I, I want you to be able to add it up, I guess, because I, I don't really want to do anything to, to help benefit my opponent in terms of. Um, any tactical decisions that they are going to make. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, for me, I guess that all kind of like falls into the category of being good at magic um, is being able to, you know, correctly assess the board states and everything. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that we both kind of see goifs and, and a, a pile of lords as kind of two different things, but it's probably that distinction between battlefield and, and variable based on the graveyard that that's right. really... Yeah, that's really something there. And then, like another gray area that comes up a lot is when I notice my opponent trying to rush me through something. Yes, like triggers and stuff. Like I played with with Mistress Bobble for a while, and there are definitely a lot of opponents who tried to rush me through their up. Yeah, get to their draw step as quickly as possible. And this is right. this is kind of the discussion that triggered this in in the Discord. I think this is really the example that. Yeah, our our listener was talking about is that he had an opponent who was trying to rush him through phases and and miss things that that he needed mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, and this kind of like opens up a whole new topic as well, which is kind of this. I don't, I don't really know how else to describe it other than like the social element of playing Magic. I know that a lot of players try to get into their opponent's head and get them to miss triggers and maybe tilt them a little bit and like aggravate them in some other way so that they're not going to be able to think as clearly. I know that there are players who do this and that's an active part of their strategy. And personally, I've, I, I don't like it. It sucks, right? It just sucks. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't want to use those elements to, to win at magic. I, I, when it comes to that stuff, I want to, I want to beat you because I'm better than you at, at you know, at this game, not because mm-hmm. I was able to entrain you into playing at a pace faster than you're used to, and that's going to make you cause that's going to cause you to make mistakes. I don't want to, you know, rush you through triggers. There was a scenario that happened at the team event that I played with Dylan and Austin, where Austin in Austin was up a game, and he was kind of at nearing the end of game two, and he was pretty far behind. And but it was one of those things where he really wanted to take his time to figure out his blocks for this alpha because if he did it if like because it felt close to being able to just be like all right if i do this right then i might be able to kill you on the crackback right there's mm-hmm. like a chance that you're just dead next turn yeah um so you really really want to get this these blocks right and you want to you want to do all the right things so he really took his time to figure it out and his opponents got frustrated at that and he took about two minutes, I would say, to do these blocks, which is a long time. And his opponents kind of just, our opponents, I guess, just kind of like went off on that and were like, 
dude, this is not unacceptable. You, you can't take this long to make a decision. They called a judge over. They asked to watch him and everything. And that really, I noticed that that really kind of got him a little bit because he, I know that he doesn't like that kind of conflict and he like, you know, we ended up losing that game and moving on to game three, but he kind of like, you know, profusely apologized for taking so long. And his opponents kind of noticed this and then throughout the entirety of game three really tried to lean on that and were like, bro, I need you to hurry up, bro, I need you to make a decision in, in, in points that were in my mind, just completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Where we were, we were taking our own time to to figure out decisions, and they they just kept on trying to you know lean on that, and they noticed it was getting to them, so they kept on they kept on doing that. And there was a point where I was just I just I just kind of like flat faced told Austin, look, we are allowed to take our time on these decisions. I want you to ignore them whenever they say anything about time. The judge is here; he's watching us. If he notices that anything's wrong, he's going to say something. But just, I think that our opponents are out of line here. Also, once you have a judge watching for a slow play, I think you are completely out of line to tell your opponent to hurry up because you have a judge there. And if you have concerns about slow play, you address the judge at that point. So right. uh, I, right. I think that's that that's pretty pretty clearly across, that crosses my line at least. Yeah, so it's kind of stuff like that where the reality is that we are all surprisingly susceptible to these kind of mind games i guess you could say oh yeah Um, absolutely and it's something that i've actually paid a lot of attention to just because i've played a lot of tournament magic at this point and something that i find pretty fascinating but it's just never something that i want to implement and i mostly pay attention to it in order to prevent myself from being susceptible to these kind of things and it's just never something that like you know rushing somebody through a trigger or something like that is never really something that I, I view to be socially acceptable in that context, I guess. I just don't like it. I, I wouldn't I, I don't I don't wanna lean on those kind of elements to 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 gain an edge in magic. Right. Like would you be proud of telling this story to your friends? I mean, I, I like I'm sure that there are people and, and certain groups and especially like within groups certain ways of playing can become like the accepted norm. But like I would never even if this were something that I would do, if I, if I, you know, if my opponent had a Misha's bobble and I just made sure to like do some weird stuff at his end of turn to kind of distract him, like, like, you know, cast, cast a couple of instants or something that I might not have cast otherwise, and then untap and go straight to my draw step. Not only would I not do that, but I would be very embarrassed to tell my friends afterward <laughs> that that is how yeah. I won the game. No, I agree. And I've seen people go to crazy lengths to try to get me to miss a bubble trigger. Like, calling a judge <laughs> away from the table and taking, like, three minutes on that judge call. Probably asking it about some random stuff that they already know the answer to. Really deliberating over their turn to blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, or, like, thinking for a long time in my end step. And then, you know, after, like, a minute saying, drop. And <laughs> seeing if they can get me... It's, I don't know, it's crazy how, how kind of far people will go to try to do these things, but it's always rubbed me the wrong way, I think. Yeah, and so. probably, like, casting a flurry of instants to, you know, to extend a phase, and then maybe they miss the trigger in the next phase, that's probably not actually that bad, because at least you're, like, performing game actions, and you're, there's a real cost to doing that. If it wasn't actually the right play, then you are paying some sort of cost to do it. Calling a judge over and extending time that way is, uh, like... Now you're affecting the tournament at large as well, and that's mm-hmm. not 
that's pretty messed up. But even just yeah. like going to lengths where you're like pretending to think about stuff in order to to extend a phase, I, I think that's not really okay either. I'm like just like I'm never gonna remind my opponent of their bobble trigger, but I'm not gonna go out of my way to make them miss it. That that just seems very inappropriate and and just not a healthy approach to the game. I had an interesting discussion with a judge recently because somebody told me. So a common thing that happens in a match of magic, especially at competitive events, is that a player wants to know how, kind of like, a, I guess, a rules interaction and how something's going to play out if they do a certain action. They're like, I think the, the most common one is, there. say there's like a land and a creature in the graveyard and somebody who doesn't know the rules quite as well says, wants to bolt their opponent's turn and and kill it. But they, they've kind of seen this not really go as well in the past. So they call a judge, and they ask the judge, hey, if I bolt this Tarmogoyf, will it die? I, somebody told me once that, that you are, that they believe that you aren't allowed to ask those kind of questions. Where the, the only questions that you're allowed to ask the judge is, how are things supposed to resolve as they exist right now in the game state? And they believed that their opponent's lack of knowledge in the how the bolt interacts with the Tarmogoyf's power and toughness is supposed to be a detriment to them uh, in the context of uh, they don't know the rules well enough, they shouldn't have that information now, and the judges should not be, shouldn't be telling them that kind of at, you know... Right. They don't know this interaction. The the judge shouldn't provide the information to allow them to make the correct decision. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, and that was kind of their perspective. And I I had never heard of that before. And I I felt like I know how all of those, how you're supposed to phrase all those questions. So I I asked a judge in an event and they said that um, that used to be the case a while ago where you, the judges weren't supposed to answer any of those questions, but... Mm -hmm. I think that it's changed now, and I know for sure that at least how it exists now is that, of course, you're supposed to be able to ask those questions. Judges okay. are partly there to answer questions on how things are supposed to work. And yeah. as long as you're phrasing it in a way that isn't kind of like a leading question where the judge is going to give you like a play advice, I personally believe that you should just be able to ask kind of like any sort of rules questions that you want because the the players should have access to that information and it's kind of impossible to know literally every corner case rules interaction and the judges kind of want you to have that information available to you when you're making those decisions right right Um, and especially because where do you where do you draw the line like we all know that the tarmogoyf would be a three four and not die like we know that but for example you know i lost a game in a pvzq where my opponent cast smallpox against me and i foolishly assumed like i i said all right now let me put this obstinate baloth into play oh not yeah. a good play that's not how it works <laughs> it's a it's a replacement ability i just assumed that my card was a triggered ability so i was like yeah let's do this and then right. we called the judge over and the judge made sure that it happened correctly in a way that i basically immediately lost the game but it was right. my own fault but i should I see. I didn't even think about this interaction. Like for some reason, my head just clicked over. Like, yeah, obviously it works like this. It doesn't work like that. But that's kind of a complicated interaction. And to 
if we were operating under the like older paradigm where judges can't really explain these things to you, like that's a complicated thing that not a lot of people might know about the first time that it happens to them. Should I not be able to get it explained to me what would happen if I discard obstinate Baloth to smallpox? Like, what's the level of complexity at which the judge is then allowed to make sure that you understand that it works? Because uh, there's some levels that, like, very few players would understand if it had never happened to them before. So that's, right. you know, ju- just because it's a simple thing. And then we're just penalizing new players for not having the extent of rules knowledge that we have, which which is a very silly. That, that that's not the tack we want to take. Yeah, um, but you know, it does it does bring up an interesting debate because you know I think that that is kind of like the underlying thing on all of these kind of debates that that people have, right? Is that what's the line in which you? Like, what are the things that you want to be able to lean on your knowledge about how the game works, about how, like, what's the line on, on, on where, like, okay, I, I want to, I want my knowledge of this to be visibly giving me an advantage in the games, right? And, you know, and some people go take that to an extreme of, you know, I want to be able to kind of get my opponents if they don't if they don't understand the rules as well as I do, and I want that to translate into some sort of win percentage, right? And you see that with, like, the old combat gotchas. You see that with, like, the corner case rules and stuff where, you know, if your opponent doesn't quite know how something works and they make a blunder and you point it out to them and it's kind of, like, too late for them, right? You know, people people want all of these things to kind of translate into win percentage, bottom line, right? But, you know, at what point do you... At what point... You know, where do you draw the line on that, I guess? I think that the reality is that if you have a better understanding of how things work, you are going to have a better win percentage than somebody who doesn't understand how things work. Because there are going to be scenarios where you, where your opponent makes a mistake because they thought something worked a certain way. I was playing, I think on, it might have been a backup camera, but I was playing a camera match against Tom Ross, and he got me with the, with the smallpox. And I put in my absolute bail off and it died. <laughs> so I've yeah. been exactly in that scenario. Um, <laughs> so I, I get that for sure. And, you know, while that was a scenario where I was punished for my lack of knowledge of how things worked, I, I definitely believe that I should be able to, before making my decision, ask a judge to clarify. It, like, if I asked him, if I put my bail off in, is it going to have to be sacrificed to his thing? I think the judge you know, should be able to answer that. Um, right. And not, and not have to give right. like a cryptic, uh, right. like, like word for word reward, rereading of, of some rules and say, well, this is a replacement effect. So it will like, like, I think that it's okay for a judge to go as far as saying like the, the Baloth will come in and then you will have to sacrifice a creature. Like that's, right. I, I think that's completely acceptable. And I don't think that there's like, an advantage gained there especially because like the dude who has spent the whole game knowing that if you put in obstinate baloth off of smallpox you're probably gonna have to sacrifice it like several turns decisions have probably been informed by that knowledge the person who didn't quite have that knowledge has not been making their decisions with that knowledge so you're still getting that advantage in knowledge before the judge comes over and I, I certainly do fall on that side of the spectrum where I do believe that you should be rewarded for a better understanding of the uh, of the rules 
But I definitely believe that the resources to be able to figure out those things should be available mm-hmm. to everybody. You know, the people who want to like hide that from their opponents, especially in the games or whatever. I, I don't think that I, I think that the the resources of the judges being able to answer those questions should definitely exist for any player. Because yeah. you are going to get the people who just put in their obstinate bailoff, and then you can inform them that they need to sacrifice it. Right. Um, uh, that is that is me. If my opponent is wise enough to ask a judge and ask how that's going to play out, then of course I think that the judge should be able to answer that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think we are moving. I, I think we're pretty much. It's been like kind of a long and painful transition, both in judging policy and in sort of like <laughs> tournament rules. But I yeah. think that we're we're getting to a place where that kind of is the norm. Like I, I heard a judge call in the PTQ, and uh, this was somebody had put a water knot in his opponent's creature and said go, but didn't say trigger. And so the uh, opponent yeah. called to say, hey, how does this work? I, I don't know. You know, he didn't say trigger. I, I don't know if they're two separate things or what. And the judge said, okay, so it used to be a missed trigger, but that's not how it works anymore. Now it is an unmissable trigger connected to the, the resolution of the spell, which is how yep. it, it should be. You shouldn't have to say trigger on your water knot because your opponent, you know, because every time you cast water knot, 90, 99% of the time, your opponent just taps their creature and puts the water knot on it. Just because, you know, there might be one guy who waits for you to say trigger before tapping their creature, that's not how you cast that spell the vast majority of the time. Even if technically you're supposed to be putting your trigger on the stack, this is clearly the better way to do it. And I think that that philosophy is really a way that the, the sort of tournament rules and judge policy is moving towards. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, claustrophobia triggers used to be one of those gotcha things where yeah. somebody puts a claustrophobia on my guy and says go, and I'm going to attack him with it, right? <laughs> um, and that just used to be like how it worked. But, you know, it, it, it definitely felt off. Like, right. that should be how things Nobody work. feels like that's the fair result. And right, when you're exactly. playing against a 13-year-old who, like, casts his, his claustrophobia or his water knot the same way that they've cast it every other game before, but this time it didn't work, like, that right. doesn't help yeah. anybody here. Yeah, so, and I do like that that is... I do like that kind of, len- of leniency in mm-hmm. terms of the way that the judge program is taking things the way that the rules are now supposed to function. So, But at the same time, there are also points where I think that the rules are getting a little too lenient in some areas. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Do you have any specific examples? All of the rules have become more and more lenient. I think that's just like the trend that things are taking. And a lot of that applies to things like the water knot triggers where and combat and stuff like that. I think these are all like really positive changes. But... We've also become more and more lenient on penalties and how penalties are issued. Because it used to be uber strict where, you know, a long time ago, if you missed a trigger, that was just a game loss and you're you're out of it, right? So if your opponent ever misses their beneficial trigger of Thought Not Seer, they are done for the game. And, and that was too much, right? Yeah. Because those things happen on mistake all the time. But we've kept on along this trend where penalties for these things have become more and more lenient. Things like now drawing an extra card means that your opponent gets a thought, sees you, instead of just your instant game lost. Because judges noticed that all of these instant game losses felt really bad for casual players uh, <clears throat> who were like playing in their first competitive event or kind of whatever, where you know if, if you're experienced the first t- couple of times 
you make a mistake like that is that you just instantly lose the game you're not going to want to play in that environment again right and while that is true a lot of things in terms of at like at competitive and professional events feel a little too lenient to the point where I feel like I very clearly caught somebody cheating and brought it up to the judges and they did an investigation and determined that he had an extra card out of seemingly nowhere and the result was that he was supposedly thought seized by his opponent and at this point all he had in hand was a, a spare land and that was shuffled into his library and that was it that was the penalty right and this um, is the story you told and I've told this yeah I told this on the on the episode before and that just really left a bad taste in my mouth because I think that at that point things were just much too lenient he should have at least received a game loss I, you know it, it, it felt like a not enough was done in that scenario and and that's kind of the the sacrifice that you make when you when you make all these penalties more and more lenient because sure you know it's going to be better a lot of the time when somebody makes an honest mistake and they don't have to get instigived out of their game or whatever but then you know what about the times where somebody does it on purpose because they know that the worst case scenario is that their opponent's just thought seizing them and then they can play on from there right i feel like they're there are a few areas where they've kind of like gone too far in leniency and and people might start to take advantage of that which is pretty concerning to me as a player who you know now i feel like nobody's gonna you know nobody's nobody's there to save me if if my my opponent's cheating me right and i think that my my whole my whole deal with the die rolls is kind of like also a little bit of part of that where i feel like getting cheated in die rolls is something that you almost just have no recourse for if it happens. If they just slam the dice down and you don't think... Because then you're asking them to re-roll at that point and it's very... It's hard to do that without calling suspicion on yourself. Right, and to be clear, I think that being able to get a re-roll on a die roll that nobody else has witnessed is also equally as crazy. Right, because now all of a sudden people can just call judges on any die roll that they've lost, right? So, <laughs> you know, where's the policing factor here, right? Everything just felt feels very abusable. So, so right, and it's just that's just another area where I feel like there isn't enough policing done. And it's almost just free to to do some sort of cheat in that scenario, which is gross to think about, but I feel like that's just kind of where we are with die rolls right now, where if, if you're cheating in die rolls, I don't think that anybody has ever even come close to being investigated for cheating in die rolls at this point. Yeah, I, I have no idea what the penalty is for falsifying a die roll. I, and I'm pretty confident that there's just no text on it in the rules. Yeah, because um, how would a judge me, ever know? Right, exactly. Unless you have weighted dice or something, how would they ever figure it out? Right, and I... I have brought attention to people cheating in die rolls on multiple occasions in the past year or two, and not once have I seen anything happen from it. And that's frustrating, right? Because I feel like I'm doing my part as part of the community to bring attention to these things that I believe are very malicious. And just seeing kind of like nothing happen about any of that is extraordinarily frustrating. Yeah, and I think that that this is... One of the points that I have down under like things to talk about, I, I have protect yourself. And I think this is one of the best examples of, you know, maybe whatever 
comp middle ground that we found at, at this point for leniency, maybe it does leave some equity on the table that that, that like makes makes cheating something somebody might want to do. And in this case, you need to maybe do what you can to protect yourself. So I know that you have you know put forward an idea for different methods of protecting yourself during during die rolls and so uh i, I yeah. know you detailed a specific way in in your article on scg.com and you know <laughs> yeah. just get get that little plug in there <laughs> that that's the one thing that i think needs to not be forgotten here is that i mean you are playing a competitive game and while i want to advocate for open and clear communication at all times and i'm never going to try to get my opponent by by stalling out before they've got a trigger that they want to resolve that I would rather they missed. You you do have to remember that your opponent is your opponent. And, you know, whether they're they're cheating or trying to scum you a little bit or just, you know, operating in a way that while maybe not scummy or against the rules is is sort of trying to take advantage, you need to protect yourself. So you may need to roll roll dice in a certain way. You may need to focus on your pace of play and not let them dictate how quickly you're making decisions when that's not, you know, what you want to be doing. And just, you know, remember that you are in control of how you play the game and respond to what your opponent is doing and and adjust what you're doing accordingly to that. Yeah, but like the bottom line for me is that if if I'm ever I I feel like I hold myself to a pretty high moral standpoint. Um, when it comes to these things, and I'm I, I'm always going to take an action that puts me in the highest moral standings. Mm-hmm. But it's also important to look at these scenarios with the understanding that people have different ethics than me. Right. And if I'm ever viewing a scenario from strictly like a expected value perspective, where just for the sake of argument, I'm going to throw morals away and and look at the expected value of things. Um, I've been pretty happy with my result of that kind of like thought process and like um, uh, that thing when it comes to cheating and stuff because for me personally, I know that the downside of ever getting caught cheating severely outweighs any sort of marginal benefit that you're going to get from it. Right. Um, Even if you didn't have your internal norms, you know, telling you like, let's not cheat, that's lame. Even if right. you were just like trying to maximize how much money you earned in all tournaments, like right. probably cheating is not going to do that over a long timeline. Right. And so I've always been pretty happy when I do that kind of thought experiment of like, okay, let's say I'm I'm taking morals out of the equation. Is it still is it positive EV for anybody to cheat in in this particular scenario? I've been pretty happy that the answer for me has been no. It's still it's still a bad thing to do. Because if you do get caught, then the 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 social penalty and the penalty on my you know potential career is always going to be way way more devastating on any sort of marginal benefit I would get or any sort of marginal like win percentages I would get. The thing that really scared me about the whole die rolls thing is that when I had that thought experiment for cheating and die rolls, it just became really difficult for me to figure out how somebody would get caught doing that, and that scared me because all of a sudden the EV calculation is that people should just be doing this. And that that was really terrifying realization for me where I was like, this is now a problem that's kind of bigger than, you know, any individual person's decision to do this or not, because there needs to be something in the rules to 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 make the that 
expect value calculation to be a negative one, right? And that's why I really wanted to write the article on this to just increase awareness about, you know, the fact that this is something that can happen and there are plenty of things that you can do to protect yourself from it. Um, but the fact that nobody was doing those things and that nobody knew about it and that floor judges just aren't paying attention to that kind of thing was kind of like a scary realization for me, right? Yeah, makes sense. Because, you know, we can't trust everybody to be operating. Like, I'm never going to slam my die down in a way that I know I'm getting two sixes or something. Like, you and I would never do that. Most of the people we know would never do that. But there are other people in this tournament that we don't know and we want some mechanism in there for stopping them from doing that. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, and that's just kind of like the, I guess the bottom line on that kind of thing is that we, we're not, I'm not going to be implementing this new method of die rolling because I think that you specifically, my opponent is out to cheat me. It's because I think that it is possible for an opponent of mine to, to cheat in that way. And I'm going to do everything that I can at all times to, prevent that from happening and make the die roll as fair as as i can yeah and and to go back to you know the just previous point before that like like that sort of overall ev thing right like even if we're approaching this as sociopaths right right, yeah scumming people out of triggers and that sort of thing being a generally like unpleasant opponent that's going to cost you Mm -hmm. like this is a community the people you play against are people that not only will you play against again, but know other people that you know. Are, are you going to be able to keep being friends with the people that you're friends with if they see you playing against people all the time and, and treating them like, you know, kind of like not human beings, like not people you respect? Like, I, it just, you know, I may be kind of out of line with this. But I, I just remember, you know, years ago, and I think I've mentioned this before, uh, playing against Colosso Fuentes in a tournament. And just he was just an, an unpleasant opponent, just mm-hmm. kind of like rushing you through stuff, uh, just making remarks constantly. And it was like, like he was kind of famous for this. And I, I just don't, you know, like I would never have wanted to play magic with him uh, like casually or testing or anything like that and i think if you are are doing these things if you're being an unpleasant opponent in general in games then you're gonna lose a lot of value in being able to hang out with people and play magic and find people who want to go to tournaments with you and that sort of thing uh magic is a tightly knit community relatively speaking and you know people know who those scumbags are so yeah yeah yeah, and, you know, for me personally, you know, my public image means a lot to me. You know, I really, really care about what, how other people view me and how every, everybody sees me and stuff like that. So I do my best to try to come off as a friendly person and a good opponent. You know, and sometimes it's a really hard line to draw, especially when I'm also trying to win and want to hold mm-hmm. my opponent accountable for mistakes that they made in the game and stuff like that it's it's a tough thing to do when i know that there is a a a large pool of players who view that stuff to be unsportsmanlike and that might differ from my personal opinion right because you're right i think that you know for me personally you know i want to be well liked (laughs) i think everybody just does (laughs) it's true it's just a human Uh, a human desire and you know and that's something that i value a lot and 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 i think that i share that with everybody on my on Team Lotus Box is that I'm really proud of my team and 
how we present ourselves at, at the table and how we interact with people. I really love how um, a bunch of people are totally willing to come up and talk to us at events and stuff like that. I just, I love that part of the community and I want to keep that going. So my actions in the game are often influenced by my desire to to come across as a, as a good person. And so, you know, when, when there are debates like this about, okay, well, some people are going to view these actions as unsportsmanlike or whatever and, you know... Uh, and and people don't like it when I call a judge and all this stuff. It's tough. It's a tough. It's a tough line to t- kind of draw, because when I see people commenting on my articles and being like, "Oh, of course, this Collins is gonna call a judge every time his opponent sneezes," you know that that hurts, right? Because uh, I want to be well liked, but at the same time, I have a different opinion on them on what's acceptable when it comes to you know behavior at the magic table and stuff. So it's you know it, it's definitely a difficult topic, but one that I'm glad that we're talking about. Yeah, and and I I don't know that I've got it exactly right with like, you know, how much information to give freely to my opponents or how much to like like my demeanor and stuff. You know, and I'm not saying that like every single match that I play, I'm like super friendly and jovial all the time. Like especially once it starts getting a little complicated and a little difficult, I usually clam up pretty good. And I'm spending most of my time inside my head and, you know, communicate the plays that I'm making as clearly as possible. But, you know, I'm not sitting there, like, just joking with my opponent throughout the whole match at, like, you know, X and 1 late in the tournament or something. But, you know, that's not what we're saying everybody needs to be doing all the time. You got to follow your own sort of understanding of what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And hopefully we're... You know, the more we talk about it, the more you figure out what what makes sense to you. And I think that, you know, if if anybody's going to take anything away from any of this, it's the fact that at the end of the day, your opponent is just another human being. Yeah. Um, And I've definitely taken that approach on a lot of these things. And I feel like I've gotten pretty good at handling these potentially dicey situations when it comes to, like, judge interactions and calling a judge. I feel like I've gotten pretty good at, at handling that in a way that makes my opponent feel comfortable and, you know, and I in like explaining, you know, why I might be doing certain things. So, you know, no matter what your stance is on on where you draw the line on certain things, I think that as long as you approach everything with the knowledge that the person across from you is also a human being and has, you know, just, you know, wants to be respected and all of those things, as long as, I think that as long as you... You know, you, you understand those things and 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 act accordingly. Then you're you're gonna be all right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have so much more in common with our opponents than we have difference. Like we're all just like nerds who really really love playing Magic, and every single person in the tournament wants to win the tournament, and that's okay. That not everybody's going to. Like only one person's going to win the match, and that doesn't make your opponent your enemy. And just because you know, your opponent calls the judge on you because there was a mistake somewhere doesn't mean that they're trying to get you. And just because your opponent makes a mistake that you have to call the judge on doesn't always mean that they're cheating. But you do have to protect yourself and everything. But yeah, I I think that's just... I I, I agree completely. Like, the, the best matches are when you leave the table and you can shake your opponent's hand and you look forward to playing against that person again. Because you probably are going to, and yeah, they're they're just as into this as you are, and and it, you, you don't want to forget that. 
Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think of, if, you know, we talked a lot about it, but I still feel like there's so much that there's there's a lot more. About, but <laughs> yeah, and um, we've got I think we some Dominaria spoilers and stuff too. But I think that that would probably make this episode run a little bit too long. And it's not like we're not going to hit those because we are going to do a constructed set review. So definitely, definitely. So maybe we can save those for for that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's totally fine. Well, cool. I hope all the things that I said make sense because it's all always kind of, you know. Yeah, it's, it's in a hard. way that I, you know, I know my opinions, but it's kind of hard to communicate all those things in a way that makes right. sense. But and it, it's hard to to present this. It, it, it's hard to present this as like a thesis with like specific supporting points or anything like that because a lot right. of it yeah. is knowledge and and instincts that are acquired over time. But hopefully, the thoughts are are ones that will help people, you know, figure out their own approach to to these decisions. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it for today. If you guys want to reach us, you can find our website at mtggrindcast.com. Anybody who's interested in providing more support than just listening and and sharing and whatever, if you want to become a patron, please feel free. Uh, You go to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. And we've got our rewards listed out there. Most important is the Discord, which is starting starting to pop. It's especially fun on the weekends while people are talking about what they're doing at tournaments and stuff. And you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at MTG underscore Grindcast. And you can find Collins as well. At Collins Mullen. And, um, of course, you can always find Collins for, for coaching on the website or on his Twitter. And as a published Magic the Gathering author on <laughs> StarCityGames.com. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you can, yeah, you can find all that information on our website mtggrindcast.com you can find yep. coaching latest episodes all that stuff that should be your your go-to place for for news on us yeah definitely so cool thanks to everybody so much for listening thanks again to our patrons and have a great week take care <laughs>